Nothing like um, hearing a four-year-old singing at the top of their lungs, you are faithful, God, you are faithful. Really awesome. <laughs> Great worship this morning. Well, as most of you know, I'm Julie Coleman, and I'm part of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel. And today we're going to be continuing in our series on the patriarchs, and we'll be covering the story of Isaac, the son of Abraham, this week. We got started in Genesis last week. I wasn't here, but they tell me. Uh, Steve, Steve told me, and since he's in my house, we talk about these things. Uh, he spoke to me on, uh, spoke to you on the birth of Isaac's uh, sons, and then saw later as adults when uh, there was a trading of the family birthright um, for a bowl of stew. Isaac, the father, is in a lot of chapters, but uh, always in kind of a supportive role. There's other stuff going on. This chapter that we're going to be covering today, Genesis 26, Isaac is the main character. It's all about him, and, and uh, he is right there in, in the star, principal actor, primary role. You know, we all love a good story. I don't know about you, when I was growing up, I was raised with uh, the stories like Cinderella, which was my personal favorite, um, Snow White, Hansel and Gretel, the three bears, and they all have one thing in common, besides animals. <laughs> what they have in common is a happy ending. And we all do love a happy ending. I'm really bummed when we get to the end of some big movie I've spent an hour and a half watching and they don't end it happily. I am just furious when that happens. <laughs> Because we all like a happy ending. But sadly, many of us, when we come to Christ, have this secret expectation that maybe now we're going to have our happy ending. That he's going to make everything all right. And, um, we're, uh, and we're going to be happy. Right? But when hard things come along, then we, we're like taken totally off guard. Like, wh- what? And, and we're, we're, you know, we're expecting something different. When we're caught off guard like that, we get angry with God sometimes, or we wonder, does God even exist? Or, you know, whether does he even care? But what we're going to find today in our study this morning about um, Isaac is the real, a realistic expectation of what walking with God is going to look like and how to avoid disillusionment when things don't turn out as we planned. So this chapter is really three stories in one. So if you'll indulge me, what I thought um, I would like to do is to help think of them as three acts that together make one complete play. So I've entitled Act One, The Famine. Okay, so as the curtain opens, just to give you the setting here, Isaac's a wealthy man, he's inherited all these things from his father, and because of um, the, the scene takes place at a time, Isaac's sons are now grown, they're adults, So the stress of raising children is over with. But things are about to get stressful again, starting with a very big problem that causes Isaac and his family to have to pack up and move to a foreign place. So let's take a look at Genesis 26, 1 to 6, and I'm going to pray just before we get started. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we just ask your guidance today as we look at your word. We never want to put words in your mouth. We never want to take it not with the spirit with which it's intended. So would you please guard us for that, Lord, and help us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit to understand these things and help me, God, not to get in the way to the gleaming truths that are in your word. And we just ask for your presence as we know you're here, but we ask for your um, work of the Holy Spirit to help us as we go through this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so Genesis 26. Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So... Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. 
the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you, for to you and your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and I will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statues, and my laws. So Isaac lived in Gerar. Now, one thing that's going to help us to understand this story to its fullest is that um, th- th- give you a little bit of ancient world context here. And one thing is that Isaac, his father Abraham, his son Jacob, they were all nomads. The patriarchs were nomads. Um, and a little thing that I, I re- did a little research on nomads, it was a lot different than the life that we know today. Nomads were largely shepherds. Not just doesn't mean sheep, it could be goats or other animals not pigs, (laughs) but they went where the flock's needs could be met. They went from location to location because they had to have water and they had to have fields in which to graze their flocks. And um, that varied with the seasons, which ones were available, and so they would move from location to location. They lived in tents, like this one, uh, made of goat hair and leather, which packed up easily, and they could be ready to go at uh, very short notice. And a nomad's material possessions, if you think about it, were limited because everything they owned had to be packed up and carried to the next location. So they, they were very limited in the things that they owned. No knickknacks in that goat hair tent of theirs. A nomadic camp consisted, and this is something new that I learned, between 25 to 50 members. If it was less than 25 members, then there was danger of being attacked by the enemy and not being able to defend themselves. If it was greater than 50 members, then what would happen is it would be very hard to keep everybody fed. So when a camp got larger than 50 members, they would split off and become two camps so that they could survive. Um, And and you saw that in Abraham and Lot as they split off into their locations. Well, the closest thing that we come to a nomadic life is maybe uh, living in an RV or the latest craze, the tiny house. Everything you own has to fit in this little space. So the entire household is transportable with very little notice. Now, I've seen a lot of shows on this tiny house. I am an HGTV fan. And I'll tell you, I would last maybe two days and it would be over for me. Of course, it never really was a temptation ever for me to tiny house because the first thing I heard that pricked my ears was the um, composting toilets. (laughs) Nope, not going to do that one. But power to anybody that wants to try. Yuck. Well, the scene opens, as we saw, with a drought, and it was severe enough to cause a terrible famine in the land, and so they were in trouble. So Isaac did what nomads do. They packed up camp, and they moved to a better place. Now remember, God had promised Isaac's father, Abraham, the land of Canaan to his descendants. So I'm going to give you a little bit of visual here, a map to kind of show you what we're talking about. I handle this with great fear. It's kind of like walking around outside during an eclipse of the sun, how you're not supposed to look or you'll go blind. I kind of feel like that with a laser pointer. I promise not to get in anybody's eyes. Okay, so let's take a look at some of the places here on the map. And we're all, we're really looking in this area right here. Um, and you can see this is the Dead Sea or Salt Sea and then uh, Jordan River and then the um, Sea of Galilee. 
my girls always tease me in Bible study about my maps, you know, because I'm a terrible map drawer. So this one's a lot better, I think. Okay, so here we have, um, and the places that are important to the story. Okay, first is Beersheba, which is right here, pretty far down south. I didn't realize it was that far south. And Beersheba is uh, Isaac's birthplace, and eventually where Abraham and his family in camp ended up back and lived there for um, quite some time. Um, and and uh, Isaac was basically raised in Beersheba. Okay, so then there's Beer. There it is, Beer Lahai Roy. Beer Lahai Roy. I don't know. I didn't take Hebrew. It's bad enough taking Greek. But anyway, so here's Beer Lahai Roy, and this is where Isaac lived um, when he married Rebecca. And it's here where his sons, uh, Jacob and Esau, were born. Beer Lahai Roy. So the famine was here all along this area. And so Isaac packed up camp and he moved up to here to Gerar. Now this whole area is Philistine territory. The Philistines were sailors and they were not very friendly even back then in Isaac's time. They became fierce enemies of Israel later on. Not a friendly place to go plant your your roots. But this is where um, Isaac landed. So that kind of gives you an idea. But um, so... I wonder, did Isaac struggle when he's down here in Bilahiroi um, raising his sons and, and this terrible famine comes on? And well, wait a minute, God promised me this land. What do you mean we have to move away? It didn't make sense at all. And he ends up up at Gerar to this Philistine camp. And you have to wonder, did, did he start wondering about what God had promised his family? Um, you don't know. But I do know this. I know that, that Abraham, excuse me, Isaac, was given reassurance by God after the move. God came to him and reiterated the promises. Um, and here's an important thing you have to, oh, and, and the promises themselves, and we can get the next chart up, are very, very similar to the promises that, he, that Abraham got when God first told him that he was going, his family was going to be his people almost word for word, a little bit different order, but these things were all there. Look at that. So all of these things were reiterated to Isaac almost identically, and so that's, that's what he got from God in his discouragement from having to leave the country to begin with. Now, it's really important here, there's a distinction between two Hebrew words. One, God tells Isaac to sojourn, that's how the translation is. Sojourn there in Gerar. That verb contains the root for the word tent. So we're not talking about a permanent residence. He's told him, him to stay here for a while, basically. Um, but not permanently settle there. But verse 6, the last verse that we just read, tells us that Isaac lived there. Different word. He put down roots. He started, he planted um, a garden, which we'll find out later on, no plans to go anywhere else. You know, and I started thinking about that. Isn't that kind of like us? When God gives us a blessing and things are settled down, we don't want any trouble. We just want to keep living on that even keel. We don't want things to be hard. Of course we don't. Nobody asks for it. Nobody says, okay, hey, Lord, please give me a trial. trial. I think I'm getting soft. <laughs> Never. And, um, but... Um, and we want to be where the problems don't exist. Well, there we leave Isaac. 
Happy to be settling in as the curtain closes on Act One. But don't leave the theater yet, because the story's not over. And we begin Act Two. And I'm labeling that one Fear. And let's take a look at Genesis 26, 7 to 17. When the men of the place asked about his wife, place meaning Gerar, asked about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he was afraid to say, my wife, thinking the men of the place might kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful. And it came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she is your wife. At least I hope so. How then did you say she's my sister? What the heck are you doing, Isaac? And Isaac said to him, Because I said I I might die on account of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech charged all the people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy, for he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household, so that the Philistines envied him. Now, is this story sounding a little familiar to you? It should. If you were here when we covered the story of Abraham, um, I guess it was last spring. You'll remember that Abraham ran, ran that same game in Egypt, calling his wife his sister in, sister in order to preserve his own life. Now, you know, both of those, you just kind of, you know, nobody's worried about their wife so much as they are themselves. And the Pharaoh called him out for it, just like Abimelech did in this story. In fact, much of this story looks like a rerun of um, Abraham's story. I've made another little chart to kind of compare the two stories. And this is only part of it. I could keep going, but I ran out of room on this page. But he receives God's call and promise, and there was famine in the land, famine in the land. He journeyed to Egypt. They were on their way to Egypt, and I think that because he said, God said to him, don't go to Egypt, stay here, right? Okay, Uh, they both lived in Gerar, uh, calling Sarah his sister out of fear, and same with Isaac, did the same thing with his wife. And, of course, Sarah being beautiful, Rebecca being beautiful, Pharaoh's concerned about adultery, and Abimelech's concerned about adultery, and then finally the king rebuking both of them. So here you've got these stories. They're almost identical. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. What we're reading today, remember, I told you, it's the one chapter that has Isaac being the principal character, right? He's not just playing a a support role. He's it, okay? And here we have this one chapter, and it really is a highlights reel. We're kind of getting the best of Isaac, you know, or or the most important parts of Isaac's life. Now, I got to tell you, when I'm a writer, I look very carefully to make sure that I'm not saying the same thing the same way any time in a given chapter, And I try very hard not to use the same word to describe something. I use that thesaurus like a crazy person. Why? Because you just want your your story to be better. But this guy, you know, I would never repeat a whole plot line from chapter to chapter. But that's what this writer did. But it's here for a reason. Why? Why is it here? I think that all this repetition that we're seeing, it's a message to us. God made his promises to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants. And I think he's showing us his faithful 
faithfulness to each generation. In fact, God repeats his promises to every generation in Genesis. So he wants us to see this Genesis as one big story, one storyline of a God who makes promises and he keeps them. That everything that happens in their lives is carefully woven to become the big picture. He wants us to, sh to show us a steady beat of a purposeful march toward the fulfillment of everything said to Abraham and that he is not. No, no generation is alone. One commentator wrote, this account portrays Isaac as pretty much walking in his father's footsteps. He receives similar promises, faces similar tests, fails similarly, but eventually triumphs in like fashion. Those re these reinforce Isaac's legitimacy as the promised line of Abraham, both to us and to Isaac. To Isaac. You know, Isaac's fear was so strong, he was willing to hide behind his wife and lie to protect himself. Not one of his finest moments. We can probably add shame to his list of problems in view of his selfish and cowardly actions and why he wasn't trusting God. And so this was a big failure for him. But following that big failure, the Lord blesses Isaac. What does he do? He makes him richer than he even was before. He got so wealthy that the Philistines start taking notice and they start, not good, to envy him. Uh-oh. Remember, we're not talking about friendly neighbors here. And I started to wonder, why would good, did God do that? Why is he making him, through his wealth, stick out like a sore thumb to all of his enemies? Well, I think it's because God was moving Isaac on. He told him, you can stay, but he wasn't talking about a permanent dwelling. Um, and Isaac had settled in for the long haul. He planted crops. He started calling the valley of Gerar home. But this was not the land he was promised. So God orchestrated circumstances to move him back because the blessing he was promised <clears throat> was so much greater than Isaac's present, as, as good as it th he thought it was. And so eventually Abimelech kicks them out of the land and Isaac leaves and the curtain closes. But now, time for Act 3, entitled frustration. And we'll uh, finish reading the last part of our account, verses 18 to 25. Then Isaac dug again the wells of water, which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the same names which his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, The water is ours. So he named the well Esek because they contended with him. Then he dug another well, and they quarreled over it too. So he named it Sitna. He moved away from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he named it Rehoboth. For he said, At last the Lord has made room for us, and we will be fruitful in the land. Then he went up from there to Beersheba. The Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. 
So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. First king Abimelech banishes him from the land. And you know, you can't live in an arid region like that without water, especially when you're trying to support a whole bunch of herds of animals. So Isaac moves to where he knows there is a well because his father had actually dug one years ago. But the Philistines have since filled it back up. Well, why would you do that, fill up a well? Well, in a desert region like that, whoever has control of the, wa the water has control of the land. It's true even today. I was Googling about how to dig a well and all that kind of stuff because I wanted to wow you with my great knowledge in wells. But um, I found a slew of articles instead accusing the Jews in present-day Israel of destroying wells in Palestinian areas. It's kind of a strategy of war. Um, and one Palestinian, it was a Palestinian that wrote this, the evidence of Israel's targeting of waters in, uh, water infrastructure shows how the policy is not only preventing economic growth, but is also driving Palestinians off their land. The process of eliminating water sources is changing traditional patterns of community water management and could forever change the landscape of Palestinian society. When you live in a desert, a water source is no joke. It makes a difference between it being habitable and unhabitable. So, uninhabitable, sorry. So the Philistines destroyed wells to control the territory. Now let's take a look at where they were again. My trusty pointer. And here's Gerel. First he went to Esek right here and dug up that well. And the Philistines came and said, hey, that's our water. Get out of here. So he moved over to Sitna and he dug that well. And um, again, the Philistines came. Now remember, we're, very, we're pretty close to Philistine territory right here. So then he ends up here um, and at, at uh, Rehoboth and Beersheba. Rehoboth is where he dug the well, and then he went a little further and ended up settling in Beersheba, which was really his hometown, <laughs> where he uh, grew up with his father, Abraham. So, um, but you know, why was this such a big deal? Well, he, he, Esek, he named Dispute. And Sitna, the other well, he named Opposition. Now, wells, in order to dig a well, this is how they were done. They were dug by hand, of course, there was no machinery back then, through solid limestone. And they went anywhere from 24 feet and deeper. So that was a lot of labor to be able to do that. Um, and if, and to, to have a filled-in well, um, you, to dig that out, that would be a lot of work also because, first of all, you have to find it. <laughs> because it's just, you know, filled in dirt, and, and then dig it back out again. It was no small feat. But Isaac and his camp end up moving on to a third well. They end up close to Beersheba, uh, where was what he was raised, and he digs out a third of another well, another, another well that Abraham dug. I guess he was a pretty busy guy. And the Philistines leave him then in peace. So he names the well Rehoboth, which means room, because the Lord's given us room here to settle. And after all this, God appears to Isaac once more. He again reiterates his promises, and Isaac builds an altar in worship, and he settles in Beersheba. And the servants find water right in his backyard in Beersheba, which is great, and God has blessed him once again. 
Now, we're not going to read the rest of the chapter. We don't have time this morning. But Abimelech shows up. I'll give you the, the, the cliff notes. And they make a treaty allowing Isaac to dwell there in Beersheba in peace. And so except for one verse, Act 3 is now at an end. So there you go, the three acts of the play. So what? What is there in this story that should make a difference to us in the here and now? Well, I studied this chapter first by investigating all the little details and the important Hebrew words and all that kind of stuff. But then I backed out and I started looking at the thing as a whole and I was trying to give myself a bird's eye view of, uh, of the chapter itself. And that's when it all became, became together in one single message. There were three acts in our play, remember. Act one was the famine, so bad that they had to move their place of where they lived. Act two, fear. Isaac had so bad Isaac put his wife at risk by asking her to lie about her identity. And act three, frustration, digging two wells, losing both of them, all while trying to keep large herds of animals alive and um, in a water and grazing ground. So do you see what these three have in famine here? Uh, famine, famine, excuse me, have in common? And don't say they all begin with the letter F. <laughs> it's trouble. All of these three things are trouble. God promised prosperity and land to Abraham's descendants. He promised those things. But rather than sitting back and watching this whole thing unfold, God blessing him, Isaac experiences trouble. No smooth sailing here. I wonder, did Isaac's faith take a hit every time one of these things happened? Well, I love this picture because we have our ideas of how we want God to make our lives go. And we pretty much have that first idea in our head. But that's not how God's planned it normally. God's planned it with these bumps and these, these uh, things that keep us on our knees and uh, searching back to him. And, you know, a lot of times we are caught by surprise when they happen. You know, it's happened to me a lot in my lifetime. Something unexpected comes along, and me, the serious Bible teacher, seminary graduate, has serious doubts. It's true. Somebody who should know better. Uh, when my grandson was born, dire health and development issues, um, I really wondered, does he exist? What's happening here? Is he good that he would allow this to happen to my family? He called me to write. I wrote for seven long years, three book proposals, worked my heart out, and got rejection after rejection after rejection. Financial hardship. Those I can't have lost track of all the times we've run into that, where the bills are bigger than the income. It's a tough time. And one of my biggest things, which lasted for many years in my life, was homesickness. I was a New Englander with every bone in my body. And when I got married, I moved here. And um, I wanted to go home. I wanted to go home and be near my parents and my sister and live in a quaint little New England town like I had been raised. That's what I wanted, and God didn't give it to me. I prayed for it. Steve twice went up to New England, tried to get a job up there to make his wife happy. And the Lord said, no, you're staying there. And it was very hard for me to understand. So I'd like to tell you that my first response to any of these things and more in the struggle was to declare God faithful and live like I meant it. But I did not. I wondered, did God really exist? Did I make this whole thing up? And if he does exist, does he really care? Is he involved in the details? 
Is he truly good as he claimed? It's a challenge to believe in God when there's trouble. And I believe it was the same for Isaac. How do I know? Because during or just after the trouble, God always blesses Isaac. Look at Act 1, trouble. What's the blessing? God reaffirms his promise to Isaac, to the next generation. Act 2, fear. The blessing? God gives Isaac great material wealth and provides abundantly for any need he could have. Act 3, the frustration. The blessing? God provides water, room to grow, and peace with his neighbors. I think with every blessing, God is reminding Isaac when he's struggling, and to us thousands of years later who are reading his story, that he does not forget his promises. And even when things look grim, he's always aware, he's always involved. He holds us in the palm of his hand and close to his heart. What's God doing for Isaac in this little three-act play? He's reminding him over and over of the big picture. He's never promised a life without trouble. He has promised to be faithful to each generation. And there he will remain involved, caring about every detail. He's showing who he is to Isaac, and Isaac gets to know his God. And as Isaac gets to know his God, the trouble gets put into proper perspective. Isaac, God is giving Isaac the big picture. And this, my friends, is how we can climb back out of the hole when trouble hits. If we view God through the lens of our trouble, it's not going to give us a proper perspective of God. But if we see our problems through the lens of who God is, it puts everything in proper perspective. The Lord told Jeremiah, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? The angel told Mary, Nothing will be impossible with God. We trust him to guide our circumstances because he's powerful and he's good for us. He's good for our family. He's good to our church, for our country, which is in total turmoil right now, and for this crazy world that we live in. He has a plan for all of it. He's moving kingdoms and leaders like pawns on a chessboard to accomplish what he has promised. His purposes will never be thwarted. We can trust him. Now, I just have to end with this da-da moment just to let us know that God's not quite finished with Isaac yet. This is the last verse in the chapter that I've read you. When Isaac was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Bahari, the Hittite, and Bosmath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Ta-da! It's not over till it's over. There always will be trouble ahead. It's part of a life lived in a world that's tarnished and perverted by sin. But we can keep the trouble in perspective by knowing God. So make it your business. Get to know him Go deeper in your knowledge of him and continue to grow your affection toward him because a focus on him will definitely carry you through. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that we're not alone, that you're with us every step of the way, that you're as big in the details as, as you are in the big picture. And we just ask God that you will help us to trust you on a deeper level 
to love you even more and to understand who you are and your plan. In Jesus' name, amen.